Well, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. You know, we all love stories of how, you know, small, seemingly insignificant beginnings eventually turn into something great and marvelous. In 1901, a 21-year-old William Harley, along with his friend Arthur Davidson, they set out to build a motor for their bicycle. Today, Harley-Davidson is the most recognized motorcycle in the world. In 1969, a 16-year-old Michael Kidrit melted some crayons because he wanted to give his mom a present and he made a scented candle. His mom shared that candle with her neighbors and neighbors wanted the same candle. Years later, um, Yankee Candle Company is the largest manufacturer of scented candles in the United States. In 1970s, you all know of this company, Steve Jobs and another Steve Wozniak began to work on the product in their garage, and the rest is history. Apple Inc. is the first company in history to be valued at $1 trillion. I don't even know what that means. We can't even comprehend that amount of money. In uh, 1994, Jeff Bezos started an online bookstore company, Amazon.com, and I'm willing to bet that 50% of you bought something from Amazon just this past week. It is the largest online retail store today. These are great stories, right, that resulted from very humble beginnings. In fact, none of these founders could have predicted the type of growth they would experience. And as we turn our attention here to God's word this morning, we face almost the opposite expectation. We are in the middle of a series entitled The Mysteries of the Kingdom. If you are joining us here for the first time, we are going through the parables of Christ here in Matthew 13, in which Jesus explains various aspects of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is the, the kingdom of heaven? Kingdom of heaven is, is God's saving and redemptive rule that here in this juncture of history, while Matthew was, was writing or just before that at the coming of Jesus Christ, it was seen in the coming of the king. He came in to usher this kingdom. And over the past few weeks, as we've been dealing with these passages, I've alluded to the fact that Jesus' claim that he was bringing in this massive kingdom, I mean, it fell short of people's expectations. And not just the crowds who were listening and following Jesus, but his very disciples as well. I mean, they've read ancient stories, Old Testament stories of kings like King David and, and King Solomon about their wisdom and about their wealth and about their global influence that their kingdom had on the surrounding regions. And this was at least the type of kingdom they were expecting when the Messiah would arrive. It would resemble that, but it would be all the more glorious. Uh, Amos chapter 9, listen what 
The prophet Amos writes in 11, in that day, I will, God says, raise up the falling booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. In other words, when the king comes, when these last days would appear, then whatever's gonna happen here on earth would resemble the old and it would be all the more glorious. They had other Old Testament prophecies like Isaiah chapter 60 and Zechariah chapter eight, for instance, that prophesied the coming of the Lord to whom all folks, everyone would flood. They were expecting this glorious inauguration that would result in a great following. But that's not quite how Christ's kingdom was established. I mean, if you were with us since we started studying Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, and we are here in Matthew 13, so far through the first 13 chapters, right, the king with his kingdom, they seem very, right, insignificant, insignificant. I mean, they weren't attracting worldwide attention, It wasn't even nationally relevant or even regionally. Or as we found out in chapter, at the end of chapter 12, the king's own family members weren't even impressed with the king. What to say of global impact. You know, it does, doesn't it feel often, you know, the same today. When, when you look at the world, billions of people just ravaged by all kinds of impacts of sin, wars, diseases, famines, and natural disasters, we begin to wonder, is God's kingdom, um, you know, really present? Is Jesus really in control? I mean, doesn't it feel like when you just look, generally speaking, uh, that Christianity is, is pretty weak and it's small? It seems like it's hated by the media, just persecuted by the world everywhere. And, and sometimes it feels like it's on the verge of being wiped out. If you don't look deep enough, you just read news. It seems like other religions are prospering. Even on the day or on the week like last week, when we got this great news that Supreme Court had overturned a previous decision 50 years ago, about abortion, we rejoice, right? Christians rejoice at that fact. But then you consider that it is not because the nation had repented that they reversed course. No. In fact, the response to this decision is all the more telling. Nation is not in repentance. It's not like Christianity is advancing. Praise the Lord for this decision, but we still wonder what is going on. Well, if you feel like this today, I think as Jesus encouraged his disciples with these two parables, we must be likewise encouraged this morning. I want us to look at these next two parables that we have in verses 31 through 33. We'll read 31 through 35 and we'll look at these verses and we'll find out two facts, two truths about the kingdom that should encourage us as we continue await Christ's second coming. Let's begin Matthew 13, verse 31. Jesus 
continues, and Matthew writes, he, Jesus, presented another parable to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Very small parables, shorter in size compared to the two parables we looked at already. But here is the the truth here that flows out of these parables that Jesus wants his disciples, first of all, to understand, that Matthew wants his readers to understand, and also us who are reading these truths 2,000 years after they were written. Friends, do not be put off by what appears to be tiny and unimpressive. Don't let that discourage you. Christ will continue to transform people and his kingdom will encompass the entire world. Today, it may look tiny and unimpressive, but there is a promise that one day it will encompass the entire world. So two truths I want us to look at about the kingdom. Number one, in its appearance, Christ's kingdom is tiny and unimpressive. Let's think through this as we look at this first parable. In its appearance, Christ's kingdom is tiny and unimpressive. Most of us here are familiar with these parables, but you will notice that unlike the first two, the parable of the sower and then the parable of the wheat and tares, Jesus doesn't give us an explanation here for these parables. In fact, his disciples don't even ask for an explanation. And in verse 20 or 51, when Jesus in the house already asked his disciples, have you understood these things? They said yes to him, affirming that we don't need an explanation for these parables. And so Matthew begins in verse 31, he presented, remember we talked about that two weeks ago, that he set before them as one who would set a meal before them to ponder and think through this other parable. Now the focus of the first parable is the mustard seed, seed and what comes out of it, which is then likened to heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And as is the case with all the other parables, notice that there's a man, a man is involved, who takes the seed and he plants it in his field, right? Mustard seed. They, they are often used as proverbs. It's a pro- proverbial in the Bible. They symbolize something that's very tiny and insignificant. Uh, we'll get to this passage, but if you would just flip to Matthew seventeen twenty, Jesus will say, to them this, to his disciples, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here and there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. 
If you have faith the size of a mustard seed. Now, he's not referring to this abundance of faith. You need to have this mountain of faith in order to move the mountain. No, he is, in fact, emphasizing the exact opposite, little faith. You only need little faith. Now, notice, go back to 31, 1331, and we'll make a few observations here. Jesus says it is smaller than, than all the other seeds. And, and, and this phrase here causes many to point right at verse 31 and say, you know what, see, I told you the Bible has errors. Why? Because I know the mustard seed is not the smallest seed of all the seeds. Now, and even though their, their observation is legit, the, their conclusion is not. Uh, we need to understand and we need to read this parable in its proper context. Consider who Jesus is teaching and who he's speaking to. He is referring, right? He's speaking, first of all, to a specific group of people, to Jewish people in the first century. But not only that, he is referring to a specific group of seed garden plants or herbs, not just any seed known to mankind, right? And at that time, the smallest seed, right? The mustard seed was the smallest herb seed that the Jewish people were familiar with. And so he's not contradicting himself here. He is speaking to them. They're very familiar. They're planting these seeds. There were smaller weed seeds at that time, but not the ones that they planted, the ones that they worked with were herbs, and out of the selection of their seeds, mustard seed was the smallest one. But in addition, it seems that Jesus chooses this mustard seed because of the proportion between the smallness of its initial size, the smallness of its seed, to the greatness of the plant that results from it. In other words, no other herb seed which was planted would give the kind of growth that a mustard seed would. No garden seed could produce anything that could resemble a mustard tree. So he is pointing to a contrast here, not just its growth, but the parable has to do with contrast, really tiny and insignificant and small. And look what happens at the end. You get this big old tree. Now, this brings us to the, the second observation. In spite of its original size, the seed grows to not only just be a bush, not just a, a little plant, you know, that you pluck away greens from and, and put it in your soup, no, but a tree, look what he's making. It's smaller than, verse 32, it's smaller than all seeds, but it becomes larger than garden plants and becomes a tree. It becomes huge. Mustard trees in that area oftentimes reach the height up to 12 or even 15 feet garden herb. The emphasis in this parable, right, is not on the nature of the growth of the tree and how long it takes. No, Jesus only intends to point out that there is a period of time between tiny and large. And right now it's tiny. Right now it's in its seed form. And third, notice at the very end of verse 31, this tree becomes a home and shelter for the birds of the air. He says it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, they 
this, this tree, right? The, this tiny seed grows to become this large tree. And really, in essence, what this is saying, it becomes a blessing to others so that the birds can gather and can take advantage of the shade. It's interesting, uh, just right here at the entrance, there's an oak tree here. And um, my office is on this side of the, the room. And every once in a while, I look out through the window, and all I can see is just the top of the tree. And constantly, especially now during the summer, there are all kinds of birds just flying back and forth, back and forth. It's 103, 104 outside. And the birds are taking advantage of the tree, the shade that the tree offers, the, the, the cooler atmosphere. And this is what Jesus is saying, this tree will become so big that others will flood to it and will take advantage of it. Now, what does this all have to do with, with the kingdom of heaven? Well, I think those who have the ears to hear, because Jesus constantly, right, says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And those who have ears to hear, they begin to understand what Jesus is saying. And, and it is this, the appearance of and the progress of God's kingdom works just like this mustard seed. It, it is very tiny, very humble in its beginning. I mean, many at this time viewed the... the uh, pronouncement of the kingdom is exactly that. It's just too small. Look at the king. Look at the king. It's too small. It's too slow. Why don't we advance it? Disciples are coming to Jesus and saying, hey, let's go. Let, let's move this along. Uh, people are flooding to Jesus like, well, you, you make yourself a king. Let's make you a king. Why so slow? I mean, think about this. The kingdom of God it comes in a way that no one expects through a king that is born in a very poor family. And at time of his birth, he is placed in a manger. This king is actually raised as a carpenter in a small and very insignificant town, Nazareth. I mean, you're, we're in Matthew 13. Look at Matthew 13, the end of this chapter, verse 55. Is this not the carpenter's son? What is that? No, this is a carpenter. Who is this guy? He's not a king. Most of the people, they, they don't believe him. They don't believe his message. This rabbi carpenter gathers, man, he gathers a group of 12, this tiny little band, right? And they follow him all over the place. And, and and they think it's insignificant, but they don't even know what's coming. We have the privilege of having God's full revelation. We know that there is Matthew 21, and we know that there's Matthew 26 and 27, right? We know that things are going to get worse for this kingdom, seemingly, than what the disciples are experiencing here. In just a few short years, one of them, one of his own will betray the king. The other one, he will deny him. He will deny him and the rest will just desert him. Not only that, this king Christ, he would be rejected by all the people, by his own people to whom he came to present himself as the king. He will be crucified as a violent criminal 
I mean, who would have expected anything great from this very humbled mustard seed beginning? And yet, Jesus promises that the kingdom will be, in fact, as the Old Testament promised. It will be the largest tree. When it's all said and done, it will encompass everything in the entire earth. When Jesus returns the second time, he will consummate his kingdom in all of his glory, in all of his, its magnitude. At the end of verse 32, Jesus here uses this Old Testament language which refers to the greatness of the kingdom that will become a blessing to the surrounding nation. You will see that verse 32 in some of your Bibles, it's formatted differently. It's in all caps saying that this is actually a quote from the Old Testament. And Jesus is probably quoting directly from Ezekiel 17. Look what Ezekiel 17 verses 22 through 24 say, Thus says the Lord God, I will also take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I will pluck from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the high mountain of Israel I will plant it that it may bring forth bows and bear fruit and become a stately cedar. And birds of every kind will nest under it. They will nest in the shade of its branches. All the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. And it seems that Jesus, he is deliberately utilizing this imagery from this passage, hinting on the way, at the way that his kingdom will include not only his own people, Israel, but also the Gentiles, that that which seems small and insignificant will result in great size, will include all kinds of people. This kingdom will grow. And when the Lord returns again, it will encompass the entire world. Now, when is it going to happen? We're sitting here 2,000 years removed from when Jesus spoke these words. When is this going to happen? Uh, we don't know. We, we simply don't know. Maybe years from now, uh, maybe even days, maybe minutes from today, it'll happen. It can happen at any point. But one day, friends, a throng from every nation, tribe, and people of every language will shout praises to Christ the King, as John records for us in Revelation eleven fifteen. The proclamation of the angel who sounds from heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. It will happen, friends, but not yet. That's the point, not yet. At this historical juncture, the kingdom was already in Jesus' ministry. And today, as we sit here this morning, Christ's rule is seen in his spiritual reign through his body, the church. But its fullness in his physical kingdom is yet future. So what is the encouragement here for the disciples? What is the encouragement for us? Friends, do not be put off by small, tiny beginnings God works differently. In fact, God oftentimes chooses to work through small things. Con consider just the Old Testament context. Joseph goes into Egypt, and then the rest of his family follows him to Egypt, but over one million 
of them get out of Egypt. God tells Gideon that, friend, you have too many people to win the battle. He says, we need to send some home so that I would get victory, so that I would get glory. He sends David, the shepherd boy, to fight Goliath so that the Philistines would know that there is only one true God and he's not on the side of the Philistines. He is on Israel's side. So it is today God works with small seeds to build his kingdom. I mean, sometimes it can become discouraging as we wait for the return of the Lord. I mean, it's been 2,000 years, where's the tree? And we don't really see this tree, even like a five, you know, five foot tree. I mean, give us seven foot, just the expectation, right? That there will be God's reign where everything, all evil will be wiped and Christ will return. Jesus today is not very popular, as you can tell. He's not honored as he should be. I mean, Christianity as a whole is not popular in the world. The progress seems very slow and even stagnant sometimes. I mean, you even think about your own personal life, your own personal walk with the Lord. When you're looking down at your, you know, feeble efforts at your own prayer or, you know, doing your own devotions or family devotions or even speaking to someone about Christ, your efforts in evangelism. It just looks so unimportant and, you know, and you're unable to do the great things that you hope for. But just like the seed that can't be seen that goes under soil, the result of your faith, friend, applied diligently over the years of your life will bring definite fruit. Why? Because God promised because God promised, not because we are able, but because God is behind this. It is his kingdom. It is his rule. It appears tiny and unimpressive. It appears that way, but the promise is it is effective as we will see in just a minute. Jesus sought to encourage his disciples, so we should be encouraged with the same words. God works through small things in order to bring about great results. Friends, don't forget, Christ is ruling today. Christ is ruling today, and his kingdom is moving exactly as he had planned. And he will soon come back to manifest his kingdom in all of its glory. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which is smaller than all the other seed. But when it finally grows, when it finally appears, it is larger and it becomes a tree so that it becomes a blessing to all. Do not be put off by what appears to be tiny and unimpressive. Now, the second parable is different on the surface, but contains similar point with one slight nuance. Although, first point, in its appearance, Christ's kingdom is tiny and unimpressive, consider the second truth of the kingdom. In its influence, Christ's kingdom is transformative and unstoppable. In its influence, verse 33, Christ's kingdom is transformative and unstoppable. This parable here is even shorter than, than the first. Generally speaking, 
It's talking about leaven, right? The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was leaven. That's, that's it. Leaven. Leaven usually was associated with, uh, had a negative association in the minds of the Jews. I mean, in Jewish understanding, leaven was often a symbol of corruption. In the Old Testament, they had to get rid of all of their leaven from their home in order to faithfully celebrate the Passover. Leaven, in the, even in the Old Testament, with sacrifices, had positive application as well. But generally speaking, it had this negative connotation. Um, but, uh, you know, as with everything, when we come to this passage or with any passage, we need to understand the meaning of the word or the phrase in its context. And so this is what we need to do here. Uh, first of all, to understand, is it negative? Is it positive? What's the point of what Jesus is saying? So what is this leaven, first of all? What is this leaven? Some say this is yeast, right, which is most popular nowadays in bacon bread. Uh, but this leaven here is different. In the ancient world, leaven was fermented dough. Uh, it's basically sourdough. What uh, some families, I don't know if you bake sourdough. We do, we enjoy it. Thank you, wifey. We get our fix of sourdough weekly, even daily sometime. So we know what it's about, right? Back in the day, what they would do is this. Um, they would pluck some from this prior batch of dough. They would just pluck a piece and they would sit it on the counter and that piece would just continue to ferment. And when it was time to make new dough, they would just mix in the new dough and they would put this fermented piece into the new dough so that it permeates and it affects the entire batch. It's basically your sourdough starter that you continue to feed. This is what Jesus is talking about. In fact, in the Old Testament, one of the most prized wedding gifts to the daughter was actually a piece of dough. Okay, daughters, listen up. Parents, you don't need to go all out for your kids. Just start baking sourdough bread. And what they did back then was they would pluck from just the family starter a piece and they would give mother usually would give her daughter as a symbol of continuity of life and preservation of the family. It was a huge gift. So the daughter then would, would take that gifted lump and it would continue to ferment and, and permeate all the bread that the family would make for the rest of their life. In fact, how many of you are familiar with a bakery boudin? In, in San Francisco, we have one in Roseville here. I think there's one in, in Fair Oaks as well. Uh, they're known for their sourdough bread. Well, they have what they call mother dough, mother dough. And that mother dough has been around for almost 200 years since Gold Rush. And what they do is they basically have a refrigerator full of this dough and they continue to feed it. And it just continued to ferment for almost 200 years and they pluck it and then they bake, they pluck and bake. And so that mother dough is located in their flagship uh, headquarters in San Francisco, Fisherman's Wharf over there. If you wanna go check it out, you can check it out for almost 200 years. So what is the main point? What is the main characteristic of leaven? 
It is that it spreads throughout whatever it is put into. It permeates the whole thing. It influences everything in its path. So leaven here is influence. As soon as you introduce just a small piece into bread, the entire bread becomes fermented. That is what Jesus is saying here. And it can be positive, it can be negative. Now, Matthew 16, 6, Jesus tells his disciples, watch out and beware of the leaven of Pharisees and Sadducees. He is talking about the negative effect of Pharisaical teaching. Watch out, don't let their teaching influence you so that you become like a hypocrite. Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 5, 6. He warns the Corinthian believers for or uh, rebukes them rather for tolerating sinful behavior in the church. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? In other words, once you allow sin in, and once it sits here, once you tolerate its presence, it begins to spread and it begins to corrupt everyone in the church. Deal with sin, Paul is saying. It's a bad dough or bad leaven. Now, Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. He uses leaven here to refer to something good, not evil. He's illustrating how the kingdom of heaven would also spread in the world. Think about it. Just like the first parable, right? The contrast to the rest of the world. This kingdom is so tiny. It's so small at the beginning. I mean, I already referred to this, but in John 6, when when people wanted to make Jesus a king, he would not allow it. And later on, standing before Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not that, the kind of king that you're thinking about. He, it's interesting just, just going back and observing where we've been, right? He didn't spread his message to the furthest places of the world when, when he was on earth here. In fact, he never really traveled too far from his hometown. Uh, he made his earthly ministry a quiet one. He would heal people. Remember, he would often perform various miracles and then turn around and say to them, shh, shh, don't tell anybody. Right? I mean, if if King was in town, he would want everybody to know so that more people can follow him. He restricted his preaching primarily to the Jewish people. We saw the prophecy in Isaiah 42 in, in Matthew 12 where Jesus where he says this servant, he doesn't quarrel, he doesn't cry out, he's not heard on the streets, he's not out there banging his drum and inviting people in, say, follow me, follow me. From the the standpoint of how just kingdoms of the world were established, man, his own seemed really hidden, like this leaven. Oh, but how influential it was. How transformative. It became unstoppable. Consider this, after his glorious resurrection, in Matthew 28, right, he commissions his disciples and he say, okay, let's go. Go and preach about me, right? Everything that I've told you, everything that I've taught you, go and preach. Later on in Acts chapter one, verse eight, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And and what happened to these disciples after they became apostles? 
Friends, we looked at them when we studied chapter 10. They had no degrees. They had absolutely no fame. They had no bands to attract crowds. They had the message of Christ, and they had the power of the Spirit. That's all they had. And the leaven of the kingdom began to spread and transform those who came in contact with their preaching. Go to Acts chapter 2 with me. And I want you to see a, just, just a quick flow of how the gospel spread. It, it is so encouraging. Chapter 2, verse 41. So then, those who had received his word, Peter's word, were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. So the church started with 120 people. In Acts chapter 1, 120 people. From 12, 120. Now 3,000 souls are added. Verse 47, second half. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. 4-4. But many of those who had heard the message, message about Christ believed. And the number of men came to be about 5,000. 5-14. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Six, seven, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and great many of the priests were becoming obedient to faith. And it became increasing and then persecution hit in chapter eight. And then the church spread into Samaria and the church spread as we get to the end of Acts into the remotest parts of the known world back then. But I want you to see something else. Go to Acts 17, six. The word of God, the message of Christ, the leaven of the kingdom begun to spread so much so that listen to what Acts 17, six says. This is Paul in Thessalonica And verse six, when they did not find them, when the Jews were looking for Paul in order to once again lock him up, they couldn't find them. They began to drag Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, Paul's associates with him. And they began to shout, these men have upset what? The world. The entire known world, the gospel began to penetrate everything. Their growth was unstoppable. Go back to Matthew chapter 13. Look what he says here. The leaven which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. The amount of flour that Jesus mentioned here, three pecks, would have made enough bread to feed about 150 people. So the whole point that he's making is, again, contrasting. This small little piece that was plucked and that was introduced into the world, into this dough, is enough to feed 150 people. So again, the focus is on the magnitude, what it becomes. The focus is on the power. The focus is on this agent, on this catalyst that is able to introduce change. What was or who was this catalyst? Jesus. Ultimately, it's the message of the gospel. They were preaching Jesus as the only means of salvation so that 
As we read earlier at the beginning of our service in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul says, we didn't come bringing to you anything but Christ, for we do not preach ourselves. Don't preach our methods, our gimmicks. We have nothing else to offer to you but Christ. And friends, the same growth is seen today. The same growth is seen today. I mean, just think about this. 2,000 years later, on the opposite side of the globe where it all began, we're sitting here this morning. We're worshiping Jesus Christ. We're reading his word. We are encouraging one another to walk faithfully with him and to serve him and to keep our eyes fixed on him because he promises to return And we're just one of those churches out of hundreds of thousands of churches across this land that is meeting this morning to remind its people that the ingredient Christ who was introduced to the people continues to impact the world. It is unstoppable. It penetrates every corner of the world. I was sitting just a few days ago with a family from our church and I was just rejoicing as they uh, was, were telling, you know, us, uh, our family, about the report from Africa. You know this family, they spent three years helping to translate Bible and help to incorporate Scripture um, in Ghana, Africa. And just seeing how Scripture, right, continues to be translated into unknown languages as new languages are discovered Christians are motivated to translate the word of God so that these people can read it, can understand it, and can rejoice in the God of their salvation because God has a people everywhere in this world and he intends to save them and he will save them through the proclamation of the gospel. Nothing will stop that growth. Look with me at the final two verses here in 34 and 35. Matthew here, he concludes this public portion of Jesus' teaching. Notice that after 36, verse 36, Jesus will get into the house and he will only speak to his disciples. No more crowd. These last two parables are the last parables that Jesus spoke to the crowd. And so he concludes this public preaching or this public teaching by quoting Psalm 78, verse 2. Psalm 78, if you would go there, please, with me. Just notice some features here. Psalm 78 is one of the largest, one of the longest, rather, psalms in which prophet Asaph recounts the history of Israel for the next generation. It was the psalm that the Jewish people probably knew very well. It speaks of God's redemptive acts and his constant grace towards them and also speaks of their own hardness of heart, and just persistence against God. And Asaph here, he reminds the children of Israel about their eternal God, and he calls them again and again, in light of his love for you, invites them to walk in this covenantal relationship with God, which stretches all the way from eternity past. And he begins here with an appeal in Psalm 78, verse 1, listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. 
I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. The psalmist here, Asaph, cries out, and, and, and he tells his people, listen, please listen, incline your ears. And does that sound familiar? Isn't that what Jesus is doing in Matthew 13? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Here is Jesus, who is the great hope of Jewish people, speaking to them, and he makes the appeal to hear, incline your ears. And Matthew says that he speaks to them of things hidden since the foundation of the world. In verse 35, quoting 78 verse 2, things hidden since the foundation of the world. Think about it. What what was going on before the creation of the world? Before this physical universe came into existence, what kind of old secrets are revealed here, are revealed to Israel there in 78 and here through Christ? Friends, before creation, there were no things. There were only persons. Triune God. That's it. Who had a relationship. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. John 17 verse 24 says, Jesus says, you loved me before, same exact words, the foundation of the world. There was a relationship. That's what there was before the foundation of the world. And there Asaph is recounting history and he says, God, this God who doesn't need anyone created the world to love, to show his love to his people, to invite them into this relationship. And you continue to spurn him. And here is Jesus. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him understand. Because he is ultimately inviting. He is revealing this personal relationship with him, the king. Because that is the only thing that will ultimately matter when all things are said and done. Relationship with Christ goes on into eternity future. And that is what he wants his disciples to understand and to rejoice in. They have the ears. They are blessed. And friends, you are blessed too, those who know Christ. Those of you who have relationship with Christ, you can be sure that what God had started in his son, he will continue no matter how it appears because its influence is unstoppable. Be encouraged, church. Be encouraged. We, we must not, we, in fact, we must learn, as, as the Lord put it to Zechariah, not to despise the day of small things, but instead to recognize the greatness of God's work, even though today it seems insignificant, it seems small. You know, to the world, bigger is always better, and sometimes, naturally, we tend to gravitate towards that. Where's the biggest kingdom? That means they're probably the most relevant. No, they're not. Not with the Lord. There will be a kingdom coming that will be grand and great and universal. But trust the Lord today. Have confidence that 
God will complete the work and he will consummate his kingdom. Be faithful. And in the meantime, what are we to do? Well, he chose his 12 to influence the world and the 12 are gone, but there are more than 12. Kingdom multiplied, right? We are here. We continue to carry on the work of the agent to pass it down to others, to pass it down to others. Friends, you are blessed in order to be a blessing to others. Just as a full-grown mustard tree provides a shelter for the birds, so we should look for ways, right, to share this blessing with others. It was uh, Matthew Henry who said, grown Christians must covet to be useful to others. And disciples are going to learn that lesson after the resurrection, and they will be used mightily. I pray that you would continue to be encouraged, even though right now it seems like other things and other ideologies and maybe even religions are advancing. You are right where the Lord wants you to be. Be faithful. Trust him. His kingdom is around the corner. We're just not sure how, how much longer, but his return is imminent. Pray, be faithful, trust him. Father, we want to praise you for this encouragement. Continue to build our faith. Help us to look to Christ who is the ultimate agent of change. We have the assurance that what he had started, it will never fail. The entire Trinity is behind that work. I pray that may we await your coming uh, faithfully, but we would not relax. We would continue to press forward. And as the disciples did and apostles did, proclaim your truth, help us likewise, not to resort to gimmicks or other worldly methods, but to preach Christ and be faithful in our walk with him. And you will cause all the growth that's necessary. We praise you for these promises. In Jesus' name, amen.